This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin. Join me as we talk to those in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to the episode. A lot has changed since the last episode aired at the beginning of June, where I was talking about the hot, dry conditions across southwestern Ontario a month ago. Most regions, I mean, obviously, with the exception of a few, of course, many regions are now well above their respective 10 year rainfall averages by about 20 to 40 millimeters. In fact, in the past 30 days, some areas of southwestern Ontario, they've actually received over 200% of normal precipitation. And so with this has brought unsettled weather, and that's include things like damaging winds, pounding and persistent rain, hail, and even tornado in some areas, unfortunately, resulting in, well, localized, some fairly significant damage. We've also been seeing some standing water that's impacted large areas that saw significant rainfall, including many tomato, pepper, and ginseng fields. And this standing water, it can lead to plant death and increased prevalence of soil-borne diseases. So the impacts of this can really be long-term. But nevertheless, summer harvest continues for many of the early crops across the province. And that includes crops like garlic, your leafy greens like lettuce and spinach, summer fruiting raspberries, blueberries, and many of your stone fruit, things like cherries, apricots, plums, peaches. We're starting to see lavender bloom finishing up in most regions, so harvest for oil distillation has started for that crop. And for strawberries, renovation is ongoing for June-bearing fruit, while the spring-planted day neutrals are starting to be picked across the province as well as summer staple sweet corn has started to hit the shelves and market stands. Now with the wet conditions, we're really seeing a number of disease issues increase for many crops, and that's including things like stemphilium, bacterial rot, we're seeing alternaria, phytophthora, late blight, downy mildew, botrytis, black and brown rot, And in all cases, it's really important during these times that are so conducive to pathogen infection to maintain a protectant fungicide program and to continue to monitor for signs of symptom development. From the insect side of things across the province, we still continue to see general activity of some of our common foliar pests. So things like aphids, potato leaf hopper, two-spotted spider mite, particularly in this hot weather, as well as Japanese beetle activity that continues on in many crops. We're seeing Swede midge numbers increasing in brassica crops. And interestingly, this has been a high pressure year for earwigs in some areas. And in fact, there have been some reports of damage already in tender fruit. Now the invasive spotted wing Drosophila is active in all areas that are being monitored. And so that means that all growers with ripe fruit should really be considering management for this pest. Keep in mind that numbers can build up quickly with the regular rains that we've been having, as well as with the more moderate temperatures that are in the forecast. So speaking of fruit, in today's episode, we're going to hear from Erica Pate, 
She's Omafra's fruit crop specialist for berries. And sitting in the horticulture hot seat, Eric is going to talk about the importance of strawberry aphid management to minimize incidence and impact of insect vectored viruses. This has been a year for aphid pressure in many crops across the province, and this is likely due to a number of factors, anything from the mild winter that we had to the the rather slow start for some of their natural enemies. But in any event, Erica covers what to look for when monitoring for aphids and signs of virus on strawberry, as well as why it's important for growers to continue management. Following Erica, I'm going to dive into the waters of pesticide rainfastness. With the frequent rainfalls and the wet field conditions, growers at times can find it to be challenging, to say the least, to maintain spray programs and to keep crops protected. So I look at some general guidelines around insecticide and fungicide wash-off and how these can assist in decision-making when it comes to what to do following a rain. So enjoy this month's episode. Hopefully you're able to enjoy it somewhere where it's dry. As always, if you're looking for up-to-date information about horticulture crops grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs provided in the show notes. Hi everyone, today I'm going to talk about strawberry aphids and why they're an important pest that strawberry growers need to keep controlling. The strawberry aphid is one of several aphid species that are found in strawberry fields. The sooty mold, which develops on the honeydew secreted by the aphids, occasionally causes damage to leaves and fruit, but our main concern is actually the viruses that strawberry aphids transmit from one strawberry plant to another. The strawberry aphid is the main vector of several of these important strawberry virus diseases, including strawberry model virus, strawberry vein banding virus, strawberry mild yellow edge virus, and strawberry crinkle virus. Uh, strawberry viruses, they cause a lack of vigor in your strawberry field and stunted plants, patchy fields, and overall an early decline. Uh, symptoms on individual plants include leaf cupping, asymmetrical leaves, uh, yellow edges, leaf model, and yellowing between the veins. Typically, um, we see symptoms develop when there are two or more viruses present. Um, and then, unfortunately, symptoms can be easily confused with symptoms from herbicide damage or nutrient deficiency. So if you see some of the symptoms that I just listed, it might not necessarily mean that viruses are present in your field. And then to make diagnosing more challenging, symptoms cannot always be associated with a particular virus. The combination of different viruses and the cultivars affected may result in different symptoms. So to confirm that viruses are affecting your plants, you can send leaf samples to a lab for diagnosis. Now that we know about viruses and why we need to control them, how and when should growers control them? Strawberry aphids are distinguished from other aphids by these small knobbed hairs all over their body. They are pale green to yellow and nymphs are about one millimeter long, while adults are a bit longer, one and a half. You'll be able to see the aphids without magnification, although you'll need a hand lens or microscope to see the knobbed hairs. Adults also have long antennae, as long as or longer than their body. And then the aphids can be winged or wingless. The concern is when the winged forms move and fly from field to field, potentially spreading virus to new healthy fields. Aphids begin to fly early to mid-June and their flight period can last for six to eight weeks. So aphid monitoring and control is particularly important 
So when you're looking at individual leaves, when you're looking for the actual aphids, you'll usually find them on the underside of the leaves where they prefer to feed. To monitor, look on the underside of the new succulent leaves that have not yet uncurled. Those small folded leaves close to the crown and look for slow moving insects. Um, actually, these are the same leaves that you're looking for when you're looking for cyclomites, except for when you're looking for cyclomites, you're looking on the inside of those curled leaves versus on aphids, you're looking at the underside. So check for aphids weekly to know when your fields are most at risk. Collect 60 new folded or partially unfolded leaves from strawberry plants throughout the field and determine the number of aphids per leaf. We don't have an economic threshold, but because aphid populations can build quickly, try to keep populations below 15 aphids per 60 leaves before the wing stages develop. This is especially important in new plantings. Uh, very low tolerance for aphids in new plantings. Fields should be scouted weekly and uh, three to five insecticides are likely needed a year. If you're not monitoring, an insecticide should be applied every two to four weeks, um, including now, uh, shortly after renovation, when new growth is beginning to emerge. So in new fields and barren fields, before harvest, after harvest, and throughout August. In a well-managed field, aphid numbers should always be uh, fairly low. So if monitoring has shown that aphid population is building up, it's time for an insecticide. And there are many options for insecticides, including Saigon or Lagon, Group 4s, including Asael and Cormoran, Exeril and Belief. For more information and details on these product options, uh, you can look at publication 360B Berries for information on the rate, pre-harvest interval, and, and efficacy. If possible, choose a product that will control other pests. Uh, for example, in new fields, leafhoppers can often be an issue as well, in which case Symantoprime, Asael, and Saigon or Lagon would be a good choice to control both aphids and leafhoppers. It's also important to start fields with clean plants from an accredited plant grower, and if possible, isolate new fields from older fields, which are potential sources for viruses. You might be asking if managing for aphids is still necessary since growers have been controlling aphids for years. Well, in 2017, we completed a virus survey to determine if aphid management practices that the growers had adopted in 2014 if these practices were having a positive impact on reducing strawberry viruses and field decline. Anecdotally, we had heard that growers were finding that their fields were looking better and were lasting longer again for three to four years compared to previous years where viruses were reducing yields and reducing the vigor and fields were only lasting for one or maybe two harvests. An initial survey was completed in 2015, so we sampled at those same sites in 2017 to compare the virus levels. We tested for five viruses, and we did find all five viruses again in 2017. However, we did find that there was a slight decline in the incidence of virus in 2017, and a decline in strawberry vein banding virus and strawberry mild yellow edge virus, which are both aphid vectored viruses. At five of the six farms, the incidence of plants infected with more than one virus declined between 2015 and 2017. And a reminder, this is when we see more than two or more viruses, this is when we tend to see symptoms. So this suggests that the IPM strategies growers had been implementing were having a small but a positive effect on virus management. It's great to hear that growers are able to keep fields longer and fields are looking healthier. However, we know that viruses are still present and growers need to remain vigilant with their aphid management program. We know that aphid management works to control viruses and we want to continue to see healthy, vigorous fields. You are listening to Erica Pate 
fruit crop specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. As I'm recording this, I'm watching the rain yet again come down outside my window. This is the third day this week, and I'm not talking about a gentle drizzle. I'm talking about another soaker, a downpour, a heavy pounding rain that just seems like the clouds just burst. (laughs) And during times of frequent and heavy rains like these, my colleagues and I often get questions around efficacy of pest control products. And of course, pest management doesn't stop despite these conditions. If anything, for things like disease prevention, protectant fungicides, they're critical leading up to a rain event. Rain can splash pathogen spores, spreading that infection and, and initiating germination. And for insects, timing for certain development stages, it can be so particular that products can have a really narrow window for that effective control. For instance, from the timing that a codling moth larva hatches to when it actually enters into an apple where it's nice and protected, this can be less than 24 hours. But how close to a rain can control products actually be applied? Or how much residue is left after a rain? And when should a product be sprayed again? Well, this all comes down to rain fastness of a pesticide or its ability to withstand rainfall. Pesticide is considered rain-fast after application if it's adequately dried or has been absorbed by plant tissues, so it will still be effective after a rain. Or let's also consider, too, irrigation even for some crops. These events can affect pesticide application in a number of ways. So they could directly wash off a pesticide, they could dilute a product, or redistribute the active ingredient. When it comes to herbicides, many of the product labels, they actually have information that specifically addresses rain fastness, including that length of time that's needed before a rainfall. So for instance, the registered glyphosate formulations in vegetable crops are rain fast one hour after application, whereas something like Lontrell shouldn't be applied if rainfall is expected within eight hours for post-emergent control. But unfortunately, for most insecticides and fungicides, there's little to no information about rain fastness actually included on the label. So for the remainder of this, When I refer to pesticides or to pest control products, I'm going to be referring to the research that's been done on rain fastness of insecticides and fungicides specifically. Let's start first big picture. Overall, all pesticides, they require a certain amount of drying time between the application and the rain event. And typically residue lost by wash off, it's greatest when rain occurs within 24 hours after that application happened. After this point, the rain fastness of a product, it's really going to depend on a number of things from formulation to what sort of adjuvants are involved, as well as the length of time since that application happened. So starting first with formulations, these play a role in how easily a product is washed off in the rain. Things like wettable powders and granules, 
they're less rain fast than products that are flowables or suspensions. As well, emulsifiable concentrates, they're actually, they're designed with an emulsifier to help mix in with water. So these products, they're going to hold onto the plant longer during rain. I should also mention too at this point that most biopesticides, they are generally not as rain fast as their kind of conventional product counterparts. So reapplying these products are typically necessary following a rain. And in fact, for some products like things like insecticidal soap, they have no residue at all. So while the soap can have immediate efficacy after application, there's really no long-term protection. Now, research that's been led by Dr. John Wise at the Trevor Nichols Research Center with Michigan State University Extension, they've conducted numerous years of trials on fruit crops for a range of insecticides, and they found performance can be influenced by four factors. And I should preface this too, that while Wise's work, it focuses on insecticides, many of the points, they are applicable to other pesticide types as well. So Firstly, a product's ability to penetrate into the plant tissue is generally expected to enhance rain fastness. So looking at insecticides as an example, things like your organophosphates, that's your insecticide group 1B, they have limited penetrative potential. And so they're considered primarily surface materials or contact insecticides. Whereas you look at your Carbamates, so those would be your group 1As, or pyrethroids, those are group 3s. They penetrate the cuticle and provide some resistance to wash off. But then when we start looking at some of the newer chemistries, things like the spinosins, those are group 5s, the diamides, those are the 28s, the avermectins, those are group 6s, so things like agramec, and some of your insect growth regulators, like group 15s and 18s, things like Ryman, Intrepid, they readily penetrate the cuticle and they move translaminar. So in other words, from the top of the leaf down to the bottom. Neonicotinoids, those are your group 4s, they're considered systemic or locally systemic. And they move translaminar as well as through the vascular system to the growing tips of the leaves. This is also known as acropedial movement. Now, these translaminar and systemic products, they tend to be more rain fast than the contact insecticides because the product is inside the plant. It can't be washed away. But it should be important to note that for products that are systemic or translaminar, well portions of the active ingredient do move within the plant, there's always a portion remaining on the surface or bound to the waxy cuticle that is susceptible still to wash off. Now, the second factor affecting performance is that environmental persistence and the inherent toxicity to the target pest, this can compensate for wash off and actually can delay the need for immediate reapplication. So back to our insecticide example, Organophosphates, those contact insecticides, they're highly susceptible to wash off. But organophosphates are nerve poisons. They're highly toxic to most target pests. In other words, they, they kill on contact. And so this means that reapplication could potentially be delayed even following a rain with wash off. On the other hand, 
things like carbamates, pyrethroids, and insect growth regulators, these are moderately susceptible to wash off. But particularly in the case of carbamates and pyrethroids, they have a short environmental persistence or they're, they're very short-lived. And so they don't stick around as long. And in cases of all those products, insect growth regulators included, they vary widely in toxicity to target pests. And so reapplication may be needed in some cases following rain. The third factor that affects performance is drying time which can significantly influence rain fastness, especially when plant penetration is important. So for instance, while two to six hours is typically sufficient drying time for many insecticides, products belonging to the neonicotinoid group, they require up to 24 hours for optimal penetration prior to a rain event. So this means in the first 24 hours, contact insecticides are more rain fast than systemic ones. However, after that 24-hour period, once the systemic product has moved into the plant, then these types of insecticides become more rainfast. I also want to take a moment, too, just to mention intensity of rain may also play a role in residue wash-off. And I'll touch on this more in a moment, but effectiveness is impacted more by the amount of rain rather than the duration. So in other words, Getting one inch of rain over an hour will remove more pesticide residue than something like a light drizzle over several hours. And this might have something to do with those larger droplets having a bit of a mechanical impact on the plant surface, while you also get this large amount of water that can dislodge the spray droplets. Lastly, spray adjuvants that aid in the retention, the penetration, or the spread will enhance the performance of a pesticide. In some cases, these adjuvants are added to the product formulation. This is especially common in some of the newer products, but otherwise, these spreader stickers, they can be added to the tank with the product. But be sure before you tank mix to always refer to the product label for any restrictions or warnings around this practice. So Dr. John Wise has looked at simulated rainfall trials of numerous common insecticide groups. So that includes... Carbamates, mentioned that earlier, those are the, the insecticide group 1A. Organophosphates, those are the 1Bs. Pyrethroids, the group 3s. Neonicotinoids, the group 4s. Spinosins, group 5s. Avermectins, group 6. Insect growth regulators, which are the groups 15 and 18. And diamides, which are the group 28s. So he looked at the residue remaining on leaves and fruit of various crops, including apples, blueberries, grapes, and cherry following various rainfall amounts, as well as the prevalence of damage by common pests of these fruits at the residue levels. So things like codling moth, uh, cherry fruit worm, spotted wing drosophila, and Japanese beetle. And what he found was that all compounds maintained good activity with less than one inch, or since we are in Ontario, I guess I should say 1.27 centimeters, uh, of simulated rainfall, showing really little need to immediately reapply. Organophosphate insecticides, they appear to be most susceptible to wash off. But as I mentioned earlier, their high toxicity seemed to compensate for the residue loss. And 
Carbamates and pyrethroid insecticides, which are moderately susceptible to wash off, are generally short-lived, but in some cases, the inherent toxicity, similar to the organophosphates, it also compensated for loss. When it came to neonicotinoids, the surface residues were found to be susceptible to wash off, but the subsurface residues really remained stable. And so with this product, longer drying periods before rainfall allowed for maximum plant penetration and really improved the rain fastness. Spinosins, those were found to be moderately susceptible to wash off, with fruit residues seeming to be more persistent and performed well under moderate rainfall levels. While the performance of diamide compounds, they really appear to be the least affected by precipitation, both in terms of wash-off and performance, with rainfast ranging from moderate to highly rainfast. And with all of this, I'm going to include a link of John Wise's work in the show notes, uh, because in his articles, he really has some great summary tables that list this information, and it can be used as a quick reference. Now, another piece of rain fastness that was addressed in Wise's studies was how the amount of rainfall significantly affects insecticide performance. So a two-inch rainfall, or again, let's see, five centimeters, (laughs) it will remove enough insecticide to make immediate reapplication necessary for all insecticides tested, all the groups. For a recently applied, as in a one-day-old spray, all compounds but imidan, which was the organophosphate tested, could withstand an inch of rain and would not need to be reapplied immediately. However, in addition to wash-off, pesticides in the environment are also exposed to phytolysis or the degradation by sunlight. They're broken down in the sun. If residues have aged in the field for seven days before the rain, then reapplication would be needed for all products with the exception of Alticor, which was the diamide, and Delegate, the spinosin, on apples. Rainfall of half an inch would not require that any of these be reapplied immediately, but most would need reapplication if the rain occurred after seven days of field aging. So the longer the product has been on the plant, the lower the performance following any amount of rain. Now, Among the crops that were tested in these simulated rainfall experiments, there was variation in rain fastness of a specific insecticide. Since fruit and leaves of each crop, they have unique attributes that influence things like binding affinity and and penetrative potential. So, for example, some leaves are waxy or shiny versus some are hairy. And so this means then that the actual bioavailability of the product how much actual product is available, that can be different depending on the crop. Because some can get bound up or unable to really fully penetrate depending on the properties of that leaf or fruit. So in other words, what works for one crop on your operation, it doesn't mean that it's going to act in the same way on all crops. For example, with some of Wise's work, Delegate and a sale for spotted wing drosophila control in blueberries was found to have insufficient insecticide residue even after half an inch of rain, whereas delegate and a sale provided sufficient residue still after half an inch and one inch of rain respectively on cherries. 
and the performance of a sail was even sufficient after half an inch of rain seven days following application for cherries. So I do encourage you to take a look at Wise's work to really get a picture of Rainfast characteristics, the the persistence and, and how the product works, if it's contact or translaminar, of some of those common insecticide groups that are used on many crops. Now, when it comes to fungicides, timing can be a challenge. As I mentioned earlier, infection for many diseases, they require rainfall. So fungicides are used mostly as protectants and work best if they're applied before rain. But how well do those fungicides actually stand up to rains that have occurred after application? The general rule of thumb often used is that one inch, so 2.54 centimeters of rain, this removes approximately 50% of protectant fungicide residues and over two inches, so that gets above five centimeters of rain, will remove most of the residue. Similar to insecticides, applying fungicides within several hours of rain, this will significantly impact wash off regardless of formulation. If contact or systemic fungicides were applied and a significant rain occurs within two hours, it is very likely that a large proportion of the fungicide was washed off and no efficacy should be expected after the rain event. Both contact and systemic fungicides, they may also be susceptible to some level of wash off within 12 hours of application. And again, the intensity of the rainfall is also important. So, Locally or fully systemic fungicides, they provide better disease control than protectant materials during or after extended rainy periods because washing the material off the surface doesn't fully remove them from the plant. But you should still apply these fungicides with ample time before a rain event. So as I mentioned, at least 12 hours before predicted rain. If you find yourself caught unprotected and you're relying on post-infection activity from a systemic product, if there are sporulating lesions already present in the field, really consider tank mixing with a different fungicide group to reduce resistance selection pressure. And another thing I had mentioned earlier, sticker spreader adjuvants, they can improve the residual activity of fungicides. However, the effectiveness of sticker spreaders with fungicides, it's variable and tends to be rather product crop specific. So for example, in grape research trials, both Dr. Wayne Wilcox from Cornell University and Dr. David Mangtolo, he's from the Applied Research and Technologies Limited in New Zealand, they found consistently better results with sulfur when a spreader sticker was added. And something like Indar gives better brown rot control when used with a non-ionic surfactant or other penetrating agent. However, Captan, which is intended to stay on the surface, it's notorious for causing injury when mixed with oils or other surfactants that cause them to actually penetrate the waxy cuticle. And penetrating agents, they don't help strobilurons. Those are the fungicide group 11s. In fact, some fungicide crop combinations have been associated with minor phytotoxicity due to that excessive uptake. So all in all, be sure to consult the label for minimum drying times for individual products, as well as for any recommendations around using surfactants. Now, back to Michigan State University Extension, 
they suggest the following to improve fungicide efficacy during wet weather. So firstly, during rainy periods, systemic fungicides tend to perform better than protectants or contact fungicides since they're less prone to wash off. And during these rainy periods, you may want to consider a higher labeled rate, which can extend the residual period. When applying a product, you want to think about the type of fungicide and the conditions you're applying it in. So apply protectant fungicides, things like Captan or Mancozeb, Chlorothalonil, you may know the product Bravo, or your coppers. Apply these during sunny, dry conditions to allow for quick drying on the leaves. These types of fungicides, they're better absorbed and they become rain fast over several days after application. And, and actually, any dew formation at night will actually enhance this, allowing the product to redistribute over the plant surface. Systemic fungicides, on the other hand, so things like your sterile inhibitors, those are group the fungicide group 3s, your SDHIs, group 7s, and strobilurons, group 11s, just to name a few, there's other ones, they should be applied under humid, cloudy conditions. So the leaf cuticle, it will actually be swollen and it will allow for quicker absorption. Whereas in hot, dry conditions, the cuticle becomes flattened and less permeable. So the product can break down in sunlight or in heat or with microbial activity or even be washed off by rain. As I mentioned earlier, I'm going to provide links for information on rain fastness of insecticides and fungicides in the show notes, uh, as well as a presentation from Dr. John Wise during the 2021 Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Convention virtual education series. And during this, he spoke specifically on rain fastness, persistence, and performance attributes of insecticides. So it's definitely something worth checking out. But in summary with all of this, Be sure to check the product label for information regarding rain fastness and follow any time requirements stated, never making an application if a rainfall event is forecast to occur within that time frame. If this information isn't available, try to avoid application if rain's expected within 24 hours where possible and consider reapplication following a heavy rain greater than half an inch to an inch, especially if the product was applied days earlier. Consider the action, too, of the product. Is it a contact or a systemic pesticide? And how this may enhance or limit the activity during wet periods. But most importantly, maintain a farm-level pest scouting program throughout the season, regardless of the rain, to provide real-time information for pest management decision-making. You are listening to me. Christy Greg McGuffin, Horticulture IPM Specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning into the episode today. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin for the What's Growing On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. Big thanks to Jade Lowe for editing this episode. Music is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. And I'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Grown On, but in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please send us an email to onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N, 
supportcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.